0: Hey everybody, welcome to Campaign HQ. We're dropping a little late today because we wanted to talk to Jamie Harrison, who is Lindsey Graham's opponent in South Carolina. So we're going to talk to Jamie about uh, both his race, but also give everybody a really uh, great tutorial and overview of South Carolina. So I'm sure you'll all be... Uh, tuning in uh, or, you know, looking at the results on your phone Saturday. So take some time to listen to Jamie go deep in South Carolina. So obviously, as will be the case every week between now and November, uh, a lot going on. Um, We had a debate this week, pretty unruly debate, a lot of discussion about the moderators and, and the job they did. But, you know, I think for voters and we'll ultimately learn a little bit on Saturday in South Carolina and then just 72 hours later on Super Tuesday, How and if the debate affected things, but I think, you know, Joe Biden, uh, you know, had his probably second strong debate performance in a row grading on a curve a little bit. This was after all somebody who won both vice presidential debates against Palin and, and Ryan. But, you know, hasn't performed at that level, I don't think yet, but was steadier. And I think that's helped him. Uh, Bernie Sanders, obviously, as the clear national frontrunner, got the frontrunner treatment uh, and dealt with a lot of attacks. Because of Bernie's consistency, I think he did a pretty good job of staying level-headed and and going back to message. But I do think his defense of, you know, some of what he said about Castro and and some... um, of his views in the past, um, you know, I think we'll raise some questions with some voters who aren't sold that Bernie's our nominee. So he continues to be uh, the strongest performer in the race. Um, the one thing that's curious to me is, you know, Bernie is not a socialist. I mean, he's not, you know, he's a democratic socialist, but he, he is not, as far as I can tell anyway, suggesting that we uh, turn our system into a pure socialist system. But I think he could be cleaner about that, which I think will be important if he's our nominee, uh, but even in the primary, because as well as he's doing um, he still needs to find a way to grow, you know, into the high 30s, into the 40s uh, to have a chance uh, at a majority of pledged delegates. So and I think the other candidates, you know, Elizabeth Warren, again, obviously had some some strong lines uh, versus Mike Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg um, steadied himself a little bit. Um, Pete Buttigieg was clearly the person most focused on making an electability, a consistent electability argument uh, against Bernie Sanders. But I think the reality of the race is, if Bernie Sanders wins South Carolina on on Saturday, you know, he's going to have momentum that I think is going to be very, very difficult um, to stop. And, um, you know, I think Super Tuesday lines up relatively well for him. I think if if Joe Biden wins South Carolina, and those seems to be the two most likely scenarios now, you know, as poorly as he did in, in New Hampshire and Iowa, uh, you know, he did come in second in Nevada. And if you win South Carolina, uh, I think Joe Biden is probably then the main alternative and opponent for Bernie Sanders. And I think the other candidates are going to have to really make some tough decisions um, because uh, I certainly don't believe folks who don't have a a chance to win the nomination from a delegate standpoint, you know, once we have enough evidence in, um, should stay in the race. Um, I think that, you know, voters in our primary deserve to choose, whether that's down to two candidates or three candidates, folks who have a credible chance to be the nominee. Uh, So we may see the field clear. I I would be surprised if a bunch of people get out right after South Carolina that Sunday or Monday or Saturday night, they could. Uh, But certainly, I think by next Wednesday, uh, the field either in reality will be greatly winnowed or all intents and purposes. So and I think the margin matters if if Joe Biden wins by a couple of points for him much better than um, not winning, obviously, and I think he has then the ability to to move on into Super Tuesday and and deeper in March. You know, if he's able to win this by some margin, double digits, um, not only will he then net quite a bit of delegates, but I think that may portend some of his performance in some of the other southern uh, states on Super Tuesday. Um, I think the biggest question really is what does Mike Bloomberg do? If you have a resurgent Biden, it would seem to be that his pathway is blocked. You know, if Biden were to stumble and not win South Carolina, perhaps Bloomberg then becomes um, the most likely person to, to square off with Bernie down the road. And then, you know, Elizabeth Warren, I think, is is someone who who sees a path there to be kind of the uh, the candidate everybody can live with. But I think she's going to have to start getting uh, some wins and top two so she can get the delegates, I think. Um, You know if she comes in fourth or fifth in South Carolina, you know She'd really have to pull off some really impressive performances on Super Tuesday. I think to be in the delegate conversation Um, And I think the same thing goes with Pete Buttigieg as well as he's done um, You know winning the delegates in Iowa almost winning New Hampshire, you know This is the part of the calendar uh, that's going to test him in terms of his ability to grow his coalition And if he's not showing signs of that just the reality of these big states and where the delegates come from it gets harder So this has been a long campaign. It's been going on for over a year. But really, five days from now, uh, it may be significantly shapened uh, and sharpened uh, where the contours of it are quite clear. uh, And we may be down to a couple of candidates in reality who can move forward. And I think as we look at Super Tuesday, uh, the question is, I'd be surprised if Bernie uh, Sanders doesn't end up netting a significant amount of delegates on that day. If he doesn't, I think at this point, that would be a big disappointment. But if he does, the question is how many? So, um, you know, if he's the only person viable statewide in California, uh, he's going to come out no matter what happens elsewhere uh, as the major winner on Super Tuesday. Conversely, uh, if if the delegates in California are more equally distributed, uh, if the same thing happens in Texas, if some other candidates, you know, whether it's a Biden or a Bloomberg, win some of the southern states and, and can net a significant amount of delegates, the delegate situation may be more um, equal Uh, And so that's probably the most important thing is when the dust settles on Wednesday of next week, and we really get a picture of the delegate picture, where does that stand? Uh, What kind of advantage does Sanders have? And then realistically, can it be erased? And and once someone has a delegate lead, the only way to erase it is not winning a state 51-49, the delegates get split. you got to win some states, you know, 58-42, 60-40. And so again, I think if it gets down to a two-person race, you know, whoever that person is has to be winning states like Illinois and Georgia and Ohio and Florida by big enough margins to make up whatever delegate you'll uh, lead uh, Bernie's established. The other thing that's interesting, we've talked about this before on the, the podcast, and, and I've done so in other interviews, but, um, you know, the New York Times had a story today on, on Thursday about superdelegates saying that, you know, they're not sure that the person who wins the pledged delegates um, should be the nominee. In the Nevada debate, um, all the candidates were asked that question. Bernie, maybe not surprisingly, as the pledged delegate leader said, uh, he thought um, whoever wins the delegates, even if they don't have a majority, should be the nominee. That is different than his position he had in 16. The rest of the candidates, I think, seeing the writing on the wall, at least at that point, uh, said they didn't think that was the case. My view is whatever you think, like if you're not going to have the pledged delegate leader. Now, again, I think if, if it's 1,400 delegates for someone like Bernie and 1,375 for a Biden, um, then I think you are going to go to the convention. And that's not just a superdelegate question. Then the pledged delegates that the other candidates have gotten along the way, Buttigieg, Bloomberg, uh, Warren, Um, Klobuchar, you know, can decide to go where to go. But in a scenario where somebody, whether it's a Sanders or Biden, um, you know, has a lead of, you know, 100 or 200, what's the rationale to overturn that outcome? You know, it can't be your opinion. (laughs) And maybe if there's polls that show at that point that one candidate would lose by 10 points and everybody else would win by five. But that's unlikely to be the case. So we can talk all we want about interesting discussions from Milwaukee. What is the rationale to basically determine someone's the nominee, the party leaders decide someone's the nominee who didn't get the most votes and delegates. Uh, and by the way, there's some people saying, well, maybe I'll be the compromise candidate, uh, even if I'm not the f- in the top two. That's insanity to me. Like the fact that that someone who wasn't the first or second, you know, vote uh, getter and delegate uh, acquirer is going to be the nominee. So whatever superdelegates say, I think there's the reality of how this unfolds. And so I still think um, the heavy odds are Whoever wins the pledge delegate plurality is going to be our nominee. And the only way that won't be the case is if you have two people who are so exceedingly close that then it does go open uh, to a convention. So if you're these candidates, take care of your business. Don't, don't worry about Milwaukee. Figure out how to get you know as many delegates as you can because ultimately I think that's the only pathway to the nomination. I will mention I have uh, next week, next Tuesday, a couple of books coming out that I hopefully uh, you guys will think about pre-ordering or, or buying when they come out next week. I'll also be on tour across the country and hope to see many of you. I'm really excited we're going to most of the battleground states to spend time with folks. The adult book I've written is called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, and it's really uh, the spirit is more important than the specifics, which is we all have to do more than we've ever thought of doing uh, if we're going to win this election. So for people who've never been involved in politics or maybe just donated but haven't volunteered their time or haven't been engaged in social media, you know, that's my most important audience uh, to really explain why it can be important and different ways they can have an impact. But I think hopefully even for all of you who've spent a lot of time in campaigns, it may spur an idea or two um, that you hadn't thought about, because I think that's what it's going to require for us to win. The right has such an institutional advantage with Fox and Sinclair and all their properties on uh, social media at the statewide level. And, you know, they have no concern at all about lying and disinformation. And we have an incumbent with all the money and data and digital sophistication you could hope for. So it's going to be on all of us. We the, the cavalry is us. There is no cavalry. We hope our candidate runs a great campaign. But, but whether they do or not, uh, we have to be there to, to play our role. And, and so I, I hope that the book will spur people to really make their own plan of action for the general election and beginning to think about the time they can contribute, what types of volunteer activities uh, they want to be involved in. And again, I spend a lot of time talking about why that's important because I think somebody may go out and register two voters in a day and say, well, what does that matter? Well, if 10,000 other people do it in a state on that same day, that's 20,000 voters, and, and that could be the difference between winning or losing. So I think we have to look at our individual effort through the lens of aggregate effort and understand that if we don't do it, uh, nobody will. Uh, then I'm very excited also I, – I wrote a book for folks who are under 18, kind of the 10 to 16 range, I guess, called Ripples of Hope, and, and it's for people who don't have a – a vote but they have a voice and so talking about some of the ways younger people uh, can influence elections i think there's nothing more powerful than a young person passionate about something And I think that they can really spur a lot of us to do more than we might think. They can teach us about how to create good content and use social media platforms if they're on them. Um, But also, I think their voices can be uh, so powerful. So point of personal privilege. uh, Those books are coming out next Tuesday. Would encourage you if you're interested to pre-order or purchase them at your independent bookstore or wherever you get books next week. And maybe I'll see some of you out on the road. Um, So with that, we're going to talk to Jamie Harrison who is going to teach us about South Carolina and also give us some hope that perhaps he's the one person that can wipe Lindsey Graham off the national stage. Jamie Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, David. Well, I'm eager to talk about your race, but let's spend a little bit of time, if we could, first on the presidential race. So, you know this state, um, uh, you know, as well as anybody. Um you know, not just down to the regional level, the county level, the town level. So, first of all, talk to people a little bit about, um, you know, the different regions, geographies in South Carolina,
1: uh, and, you know, how they kind of play out in primaries down there. Yeah, so you know South Carolina has a number of little regions that make it up and they all have their own personality and and they all have different types of barbecue also <laughs> as you know David. <laughs> Most importantly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I grew up in the in the Midlands and and our barbecue is <laughs> really mustard-based. Um and uh but this is the Midlands is sort of the heart of the democratic vote in South Carolina. That is uh most of the Midlands are incorporated into Jim Clyburn's district, but this is the area where Columbia it is, uh, the Richland County, which is uh, the, the capital of the state, but it's the largest Democratic county in the state. But in this area, you also have counties like the county that I'm, I'm from, Orangeburg County, where there's two historically black colleges and universities. And so you see a lot of the African-American vote is concentrated in this particular region of the state. Then you have uh, the Low Country, which I think most people uh, who don't live in South Carolina are more familiar with. And that's where Charleston is, Charleston and Hilton Head. Uh, it's our more coastal areas. Uh, this area has been traditionally a, a very swingy area. I would say if you had some purple counties, you would put them in this area. Um, But they've turned purple over the course of the past uh, few years. Uh, Charleston is because of the rapid population growth. So many people are are moving into uh, South Carolina. We're the ninth uh, fastest growing state in the nation. Uh, And many folks are moving into this Charleston low country area. Uh, And we've seen that change and it's had an impact because uh, last last cycle in 2018, we were able to elect – Uh, Democratic congressman from that area for the first time in well over 30 years. And so uh, Charleston is changing very, very quickly. Uh, And then Beaufort County, where Hilton Head is, you still have a large retiree population that's there, Uh, tends to be a little more conservative than Charleston. Uh, Then there's an area sort of to the east of the Midlands and to the north of low country called the P.D. Uh, Piedmont region. Uh, th- this is an area of South Carolina uh, that's very rural. Um, you know, this is where you find a lot of peanuts, tobacco and all that type of stuff in, in the past used to be grown in this area. Um, and I would say this is a swing area now of South Carolina as well. Um, uh, and I think when thinking about this presidential election, this part of the state probably got the, less, the-, the least amount of attention. And uh, I think, you know, had I been running a campaign, you know, I really and and the campaign that we're running for the U.S. Senate, we're going to spend a lot of time in the in in the PD area. Um, This part of this area is in that uh, famed corridor of shame. Um, This is an an area part of Clyburn's district and part of John Spratt's old district in which uh, you would have the highest uh, you would find, you know, places where the highest levels of health disparities or uh, the areas where, you know, there's the least amount of infrastructure. Um, uh, you know, again, an agricultural area, but people have sort of forgotten that area in terms of development. And so uh, it, it needs a lot of attention and a lot of love to bring it, bring it up to speed and to bring it up. And then you have uh, your your upstate area. Um, this is uh, where Greenville and Spartanburg are, which is really the the economic part of the economic engine of of South Carolina. But this is an area that's much more conservative as well. Uh, it's where Bob Jones University is uh, up in in Greenville. But what we are starting to see as well uh, is that this area is starting to change. Uh, In South Carolina, Um, you know, for the first time now coming off of this last election cycle, we have a democratically controlled uh, city council in the city of Greenville. Um, But you have a large pocket. It's It's a huge part of the populace of South Carolina but it's been traditionally very conservative, a lot of the evangelical vote in that part of the state. But you also have large pockets of unregistered African-Americans in that part of the state as well. And so we're gonna be spending a lot of time uh, in in that area. But when we think about the heart of the Democratic vote, you have to go back to the Midlands and and the the Midlands where Columbia is. So that's a helpful sort of political tour through the state. So I'm
0: curious, Jamie, um you know there's obviously polls all over the place so you know some uh, in the last 48 hours show vice president biden opening up a pretty big lead including some with a lot of the candidates under 15 others still show a, a close race with with Biden, Sanders and others, um, you know, uh, a little higher than 15. If you had to guess, I mean, are we? is there a scenario where just one candidate might be viable statewide or do you think we're looking at multiple people crossing that 15 percent threshold?
1: Yeah. Well, David, I got to give the caveat here. You know, I'm a DNC officer, so I don't want anybody to think this is coming out to be an endorsement for somebody or another's. Sort this is assess- pure punditry, man, not, uh, yeah, <laughs> preference, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of an assessment from the field. Hey, listen, this is, South Carolina has always been a, a state where, as you know, Joe Biden uh, uh, has had some affinity. I mean, even when, uh, during the eight years of President Obama, as I, I like to say that Joe Biden was a part of Black Camelot, right? You know, uh, Barack Obama is extremely popular, still popular here, all across the state of South Carolina um, and and Joe Biden is seen in that light by many, particularly in the African-American community. And so this has always been that he's had the inside track to this. Um, we started to see some slippage uh, in, in, in that support over the course of the past few months, um, in the past few weeks. But I, I think what has probably helped uh, Vice President Biden is that endorsement by Jim Clyburn uh, on yesterday. Um, I don't know if you've gotten an opportunity, David, to hear that, but uh, I did. Uh, yeah, it was, it was extremely heartfelt and powerful. I mean, it was it was personal on a, on the deepest level, um, and and you know, Congressman Clyburn is uh, uh, is beloved in this in the state, and uh, and his his word and his. Uh, and his testimony will probably have a significant sway. I mean, he, he's the one endorsement. If you're running in South Carolina on the Democratic side, he's the one endorsement you want to get. And that's because he's probably the one and only person in the state that actually has some type of um, um, political machine, I would say, in the state. So. Well,
0: Jamie, before we jump, I'd like to just spend a minute there, though. Obviously, yeah. you know him well. You you helped lead his uh, or led his floor operations, you know, in Washington. But... Whether it's South Carolina or the other 49 states, you know, endorsements generally, in my view, get too much coverage. And then when you actually look at the votes they produce. So you mentioned he's got a political organization. But what makes Jim Clyburn so unique, not just in South Carolina? Because I I do think you could argue it might be the most important endorsement if you're saying the endorsement means actual votes. And why is that? So it is the organization, but it's got to be something deeper than that.
1: Yeah, you, you know, it, he's just a beloved figure, and and he has deep roots in, uh, in the religious community across South Carolina. You know, uh, uh, from the AMES to the to the Baptists, uh, you know, all of them, uh, you know, Jim Clyburn has been good to those communities, and they've been good to Jim Clyburn. Um, but he you know, he sort of established this, this grassroots effort of you need to go and you need to organize the barbershops and the beauty shops. Um, you, you need to work the fraternal and sororities, uh, the fraternities and the sororities. Uh, he has this network of, of folks who, when he speaks, they, they, they listen to it because they know it comes from, uh, a place that is, uh, uh, you know, committed to doing what's what's best for the least of these, and so, uh, and and that's just a testament to to him being such a statesman for so long and always working and, and fighting and trying to help everybody out. And then that network extends far, you know, outside the boundaries of South Carolina, and you know, members of Congress uh, also have that type of respect for Jim Clyburn as well. And so, uh, I, I mean, that was a, a significant get by the vice president. And, and I think, I mean, you don't want to un- underestimate that at all. And
0: so I appreciate it. I just think it's important because um, I do think it's very unique, uh, the effect uh, he he can have on a race.
1: Yeah, I think he and John Lewis is probably somebody similar that has that type of impact, right. um, a sort of an emotional appeal and impact. Uh, there are very few of them left. Uh, that I think could make a difference in terms of getting somebody to vote yay or nay. Right. So you were saying some slippage from the vice
0: president. You think the Clyburn endorsement um, has helped stabilize things. So so is your sense, though, that we we may have multiple people, you know, north of 15. So the statewide delegates get uh, distributed fairly evenly. Or is it possible that someone like a Biden could could uh, could win the lion's share of them?
1: Oh, I, I think that there will probably end up being multiple. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the the Sanders campaign has a strong operation on the ground here in South Carolina. Uh, I mean, they, they've knocked a lot of doors here. Uh, and the Steyer campaign also very similar, very strong operation uh, on the ground. They, you know, they have sort of taken the t- textbook approach um, to, to organizing. You know, they are hiring people from the community. They are um, – uh, you know, advertising, black radio, and uh, you know, reaching out um, uh, in the in the way that I think if you ask any political uh, activists on the ground or somebody from those communities, in the way that they would suggest that you do it. And so uh, those are, the, I think, the three campaigns to really, really watch on the ground here. Um, you know, Warren and, and Pete have really good uh, programs as well on the ground. And so, but I think those are the top three uh, right now, just sort of uh, an assessment from the field. Right. Well, what's interesting about South Carolina,
0: of course, is it's the first state of the four. I mean, President Obama back in 2008 and as well as Hillary Clinton in 16, just to, they didn't just win the states. They actually netted a large number of delegates. So, you know, at this point in the race, I'm sure Vice President Biden would be happy with a win, as would Bernie Sanders. But, yeah. you know, if you win with some margin in South Carolina, you can actually um, net – you know, pretty large amount of delegates, particularly if you're doing relatively well distributed across the seven you know congressional districts.
1: That's exactly right. Listen, I would I would go off to say that, and this is for both Democrats and Republicans. South Carolina of the early four early states is probably one of the. I know Iowa, New Hampshire come first, but I would say for both the Democratic and Republican sides, the recent history shows that South Carolina is extremely significant probably hits above its belt don't uh, wait in terms of its significance on, on who who eventually becomes a nominee of, of either party um you know and I think On the Democratic side, this is the first state with a significant black population. Sixty percent of the folks who will come out are are African-American. And and that gives going into Super Tuesday, which last time was like the SEC Tuesday, right? Because you got (laughs) all of these other southern states with large black populations. Uh, It gives it's a springboard going into the rest of the South. People look, you know, they got relatives. (laughs) As my grandma said, we got folks, all relatives all across the South. Uh, and they look at what we do here in South Carolina, and and that has a factor um, uh, in in what happens on Super Tuesday. We saw it with uh, President Obama. We saw it with Hillary Clinton, and you'll probably see it again with the winner of of our primary here uh, uh, on Saturday.
0: No, I'm not just saying this because you're on the show. I mean, I've said that since the beginning of this primary, um, that South Carolina is the springboard, and it's hard to see somebody being the nominee who doesn't do exceedingly well in South Carolina. So talk about that a little bit. So you've got, you know, uh, you know, in March, you've got Alabama, Arkansas, you've got your northern neighbor, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia later in the month. What can we learn from what happens Saturday? Not that, you know, the results there will be transferred entirely, but, but as you're thinking about for people who are following this race carefully, what could that mean in terms of performance, um, you know, in some of those key southern states in March?
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things, David, I would love to see more. And this is in, in, in many ways, I'm trying to model what we do off of w- what you guys did, which is, you know, Democrats win when we're hopeful and aspirational. Mm-hmm. We win when we're not just talking about the nuance of policies, but when we can speak to the hopes, the aspirations and the fears of, of regular everyday people. Uh, you know, there are folks who you're working a job. They're working two jobs all at the same. You know, they're working all of these things and they don't have the time to get into the, the details about this policy and this plan and this and that. So you really got to speak to who they are as, as, as people. Right. And that's what I'm trying to do each and every day on my campaign. I want to see more of that coming from our, our presidential uh, candidates, because I think if you can speak to the soul of people, Um, If you can speak to that and you can feed it, right? If you can feed that, then that is how we win. Um, And to be quite honest, that's how Donald Trump won this last election. Uh, He spoke to that uh, for for a segment of the population. But I think, you know, we've been traditionally the better people to do that. Uh, but I haven't seen it thus far, and and I, I think if you know the success for anybody coming out of South Carolina. But if you really want to build this thing, if you really want to to get these voters motivated, you got to you got to feed the soul. Uh, speak to their fears, speak to their aspirations, what their hopes and their dreams, uh, and talk to that and 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 and, and invest in that. Uh, I just haven't seen it uh, to this to the extent that I would like to see it. Uh, thus far in this
0: race, well, I agree with that, Jimmy. We'll talk about your race in a minute. I, I will tell you though, as a, as a, you know, political operative. Um, who has both been involved in the wars in South Carolina and studied them. This is a pretty gentle week heading into South Carolina. (laughs) You know, I mean, whether it was our race in OA, Bush, uh, McCain, you know, South Carolina is historically a place where, uh, you know, the knives come out and people have to show that, you know, kind of the, the toughness they bring. But this one's been pretty gentle, I think. So let's talk about your race a little bit. So I want to talk about some of the substance and and what the hell has happened to Lindsey Graham um, to the extent (laughs) anybody can divine. But I'm sure you talk to people both who are thinking about volunteering their time for you in South Carolina or donating their money who say, love you, really think Graham's got to go, but how can we win? So what's your elevator pitch on um, how you get to 50 percent of the vote uh, in South Carolina?
1: Well, first of all, David, the one thing is you have to dispel the myth that South Carolina is ruby red, as most people like to make it out to be. Right. You know, uh, President Obama in 2008, and you guys didn't, we weren't one of the battleground states in 2008. But even given that, he only lost the state by 150,000 votes. Right. Right. And that's without doing much advertising or anything in the state. We got, Um, you know, almost 45 percent there. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, you know, uh, President Obama lost South Carolina by eight points in, in 2008. He lost Georgia by seven. Uh, and in 2012, he lost us by nine. And I think he lost Georgia by eight. So in many ways, Georgia and South Carolina are very similar. The, the only difference is we don't have a huge Atlanta. Right. Um, which Which is such a huge pocket of votes. Um, And so I often tell folks the problem that we've had in South Carolina, they say, well, why can't Democrats win? It's because we really haven't had the party infrastructure for well over a decade to allow us to get our message out, to really build uh, the apparatus that we need to reach out to voters. And as a result, African-American voters just don't turn out to vote in the state. We have more African-American voters in South Carolina than they do in North Carolina. Twenty eight percent of our population uh, of voting uh, uh, registered voters are African-American uh, and as opposed to 23 percent in North Carolina. And there's pockets to to improve that. Mm-hmm. We got 400,000 unregistered black voters in the state right now. I, I'm going to say that again. 400,000 unregistered black voters in South Carolina. And as I said, in 2008, Barack Obama lost by 150,000 votes. So the votes are there. Uh, we just got to, we got to get them activated. Now, part of it is there's never been a candidate that has run statewide like me. There's never been an African-American, you know, sort of at the top of the ticket, really, because the presidential will probably not play in South Carolina much. So at the top of the ticket that has had the life type of experiences that I've had, but at the same time, you know, I can go into a rural white or black county and talk to farmers about, you know, uh, the The combines they just bought, right? Or or what crops that they're uh, they're planting this year? At the same time, I can go to the Ports Authority, or I can go to Michelin and BMW and talk about the importance of investment uh, and, and other legislation and how that impacts them. So I'm this campaign is a very very unique one um, where I'm going to have the resources to probably put on the best field operation in the history of the state. Uh, and many ways we are taking the playbook that Stacey Abrams had in Georgia, which is expand the electorate, register more voters, and then you go to every part of the state. You don't you don't take any part of the state for granted and you ask for the vote. Does that mean you're going to get all of the votes in red counties? No. But if you cut the margins, you can win this. Yeah. And that's what puts me at ease. And then add to the fact Lindsey Graham's a different guy. This is not the same Lindsey Graham as uh, just 6 years ago. You know, 6 years ago Lindsey Graham won with 54% of the vote against a good friend of mine who who raised, you know, a little less than a half million dollars. We raised 7 million dollars at last year and that's not even the calendar year. Um this is going to be the probably the most expensive race in the history of the state and Lindsey has a fight on his hand, right? So um
0: by the way, I hope our nominee takes that approach too which is in the battleground states You know, they're talking to everybody everywhere because, you know, the truth is uh, losing some counties 60-40 rather than 70-30 can make the difference. So let's talk about so. So you clearly are going to focus on registration. You're going to focus on turnout. You're going to focus on building a great grassroots organization to accomplish both of those things. But it's fair to say, well, I hope our nominee wins South Carolina. Super unlikely. Right. So for you to win, there's going to have to be some voters who vote Trump, Harrison. Talk to me about who do you think those voters are and why they may abandon Graham.
1: Or, you know, those voters just don't. They vote Trump and they say a pox on both Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham. Right. 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 right, right, (laughs) right. Um, Great point. Yeah. I mean, see, this is the thing we are going. uh, We're going all across the state. I was just in Lancaster County, uh, South Carolina. This is a county that went for Donald Trump. Sixty one thirty five. I'm going to send you this picture, man. Uh. I expected, you know, we were going to talk to a senior community. I expected 30 or 40. We had 30 or 40 RSVPs. I walk into this hall, man, and there are 250 people. And I walk in, and and, and I can tell you, these are not traditional Democratic voters. Uh, there's senior white voters in South Carolina. And I walk in, and as soon as they see me, they stand up, and they start chanting, send Lindsey home, send Lindsey home. I almost had a mini uh, heart attack right there. Um, there and and some of the folks come up to me and they say, you know, I just don't know what has happened to Lindsey Graham. I, I voted for him before and I just don't know what's happened to him. And then some of them have frustration that he didn't stand up for John McCain mm-hmm. uh, against the attacks by the president. Many of them talk about, you know, well, I don't know if you that we did a focus group with white women in Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, Charleston is so significant to the vote. And it, these women were college educated, but they were uh, uh, moderate Republicans or independent. And one woman said to me, or uh, uh, said to, to the moderator, she said, uh, you know, I don't know what's happened to Lindsey Graham. I don't know why he didn't stand up for his friend John McCain. And if he didn't stand up for his friend John McCain, then what would he do for me? Right. I mean, it, it was a campaign ad right there itself. It wrote itself. But that's that's something that I hear all the time across the state. We're getting independents and Republicans coming to our rally because they're frustrated. Um, People are tired of the division. They're tired of the hatred and they want to be united. They want to unify. Uh, And the way that I talk about issues in South Carolina is not in the traditional D.C. frame. As I tell folks all the time, this is not about Democrat versus Republican. And it's not about progressive versus conservative. Ultimately, it's about what's right versus wrong. And it's wrong to be in a state where we've had four rural hospitals to close over the past few years. It's wrong to be in a state where uh, two years ago, 14 of our 46 counties had no OBGYNs. Uh, Republicans have refused to expand Medicaid. There are almost 300,000 people in South Carolina who don't have health care right now, but they should. If they lived in any other state, they probably would have health care. But here in South Carolina, they don't. Yeah, you know, a third of our state doesn't have access to broadband, right? How in the world do we expect our kids to compete with the rest of the world when they can't even connect with the rest of the world? And all of these things, all of these issues and problems, have been here under the watch and tutelage of Lindsey Graham, who's been there for 20 plus years, and all he cares about is flying around in Air Force One.
0: Yeah, well, pretty powerful message I'm sure you're bringing, which is he's much more interested in you know getting Donald Trump's back than the backs of South Carolinians. That 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 stat on broadband is just. Eye-opening. So it sounds like, you know, there's there's probably some independents and, and Republicans you're running across in South Carolina, to your point, you're tired of the division. So they might even be considering not voting for Trump. But for those that, you know, it seems like, though, you know, what everything about Trump you know, he's consistent. He is who he is, right? That's exactly right. And so how much of a price is Lindsey Graham paying for? You mentioned he's not the same guy, but, you know, sometimes in politics, it's uh, being wrong is never great, but being weak is worse, right? Yes, that's exactly right. It's about character. Right. So he he's abandoning, you know, the thing most people know about Lindsey Graham is his lifelong, you know, genuine friendship with John McCain. Sort of almost seems like he's abandoned that posthumously uh, and kind of Donald Trump is calling his shots. So how much is he Paying a price for that, and are people aware of it? I mean, is that getting enough attention and coverage in South Carolina, or is that more of like a national media thing?
1: They are aware of it and 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 some of the polling that we have seen here that i 'm beating him with independence, and that's huge because the old lindsey graham was was super popular with the, the independence of the state because again he was seen as a middle of the road, even though he was conservative, he was seen as a middle of the the road sort of uh The maverick, someone who would do what was in the best interest of the nation or the state when when the rubber met the road. And because of this turn, he's not. So, you know, he used to have this coalition of Democrats who thought, well, Lindsey's probably the best we're going to get. He's, you know, somebody that I respect. I don't agree with, but I respect. And so he would folks would vote for him. Uh, He would get independents overwhelmingly. And then he would get your mainstream Republicans. That was Lindsey Graham 1.0. Lindsey Graham 2.0 has lost those Democrats, is losing independence now uh, to me and now has gained on the right. But I believe I really do believe that 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 support is somewhat soft because some of those people still don't quite trust Lindsey Graham. When you look at the polling, Donald Trump outpolls Lindsey and there's a gap between Trump and Lindsey Graham in the same poll, meaning that those people will vote for Donald Trump, but they don't quite trust Lindsey Graham. And that's that's his Achilles heel, and that's the thing that we're going we're going to focus on like a laser, um, because character matters. It matters, and and, and it, it is in a place like South Carolina that is so values based. It is really important. People want to know, in the end of the day, that they can trust you, right. even if they don't agree with you. They want to know that they can trust you. And this guy has flip flopped on everything. Uh, and you know he'll say one day. The one thing today, and and turn around and do something different tomorrow, and that's not that's not something that people respect or value here in this state. Well, speaking of your narrow self and
0: political interest, uh, hopefully this doesn't look like Trump's going to lose. Obviously, because Graham may decide to scramble back to his old, you know, mavericky ways, <laughs> you know, in the fall. But it's no. I, so I'm curious. Um, listen, with the coronavirus, uh, Jamie, we obviously all hope for the best, both in terms of its effect, in terms of people's health here in the U.S. and the economy. But if we're in a situation where the economy is wounded by this, and I'm not just talking about the stock market, whereas you know there's a lot of voters, most voters, yeah, um, are not in the market, but you know it could affect growth and and business growth and layoffs. How does that change your campaign at all in terms
1: of the messaging and kind of where you think voters are? Yeah, you know I'm really really concerned by by this virus. My wife is a f- food and drug law professor, and she tracks all of these things you know, medicine, medicine development and, and, uh, you know, all these things that come up. Uh, But I'm very, very concerned about the health and well-being. We have such a high senior population in in this in the state. Uh, I know that this virus so far, they say, has a a much more deadly impact on those folks over the age of 70. Um, uh, We are also a state that relies on uh, trade. Because we have a huge port, which, you know, about a third of the jobs in this state are directly or indirectly tied to the port of Charleston. And so, uh, you know, not being able to get shipments in from other countries that are being ravaged by this virus or uh, not being able to ship our supplies over to those other nations, uh, it could have a huge economic impact on South Carolina. Um, you know, it is something that we all need to be very aware of. And, and it's and just it's, it's just hard that you can't trust this administration to do what's in the best interest of, of the nation. I mean, when you think about uh, the, the federal government and how they have cut. Certain fundamentals, uh, you know, funding for NIH and some of these other uh, institutions that we need in these time times of crisis, and and then when they start to make appointments to, to lead these efforts, I mean, what does Mike Pence know about the coronavirus? Uh, I I that's not going to give me some assurance. This is a guy who talked about smoking and 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 not being uh, 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 it doesn't impact your health. I mean, it's it's those type of things that. It does not give me uh, a whole lot of confidence. And then, of course, Lindsey Graham in his uh, uh, with his sycophant ways won't say a word in order to stand up for South Carolina if it means uh, being counter to the president. And, you know, my thing to Lindsey Graham is I don't care. You know, yes, you should be friendly with the president because he's your president, the the president of your, uh, you know, the top leader of your party. I understand all of that. I understand the politics of it. But at the end of the day, you were sent to Washington, D.C. to represent the people of South Carolina. And that's period, full stop. That is your job. And so whenever their livelihoods are threatened, you need to be able to stand up. And even if that is to uh, uh, the president of, uh, uh, of your party or the leader of your party, you have to be able to stand up. I can tell you, you know, if I were in the situation and it was, and it was the Obama administration and they weren't doing something right for South Carolina, I wouldn't be quiet. I would, <laughs> I would be standing up because in the end of the day, you got to know where your, where your bread's buttered. Your bread is buttered back home. All politics is local and you're supposed to represent these people here in this uh, in this great state. And it's sad to see that 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 someone that I used to respect and thought could play that type of role uh, no longer does. Right. Well,
0: no, he's more like Trump's court jester even than friend. Right. It's sad. It's like he's gone from Maverick to Trump's Muppet. Yes. It's uh, really. So I'm curious, Jamie. So you're uh, focused like a laser on winning the Senate race in South Carolina. But. You are, whether it's trying to uh, register and turn out uh, tough to to activate voters, trying to win over swing voters, uh, even though South Carolina is not going to be a presidential battleground, you are trying to convert a lot of the people we need to in states like North Carolina and Georgia. And I'm just curious, like, what type of race do you think our nominee needs to run against Trump? Now, I will say this. Um, I hear all the time from friends of mine, you know, donors, political folks, like, we're not making the case against Trump in these debates. It's like their job right now is to win the nomination. So let's settle down. You know, that yeah. that that phase of the campaign's coming. But what, what I'm just curious, I you are in the arena right now. You, you are trying to win a general election campaign. And so you probably do have some interesting observations and lessons. Um, cause I don't think it's simply enough. We should learn a lot from the great candidates of 18, but Trump wasn't on the ballot then. So this is a different race. So I'm yeah. just curious, um, your observations about how we can put together a, a winning campaign at the national level.
1: Well, you know, and I just talked with somebody early about this and, and I told them this, I said, you know, think, let's think back to 2008, right? Uh, the, uh, with President Obama and then Senator then Senator Obama, and I said, "Tell me about the details about Barack Obama's plans when he was running for the for the presidency," and you get this blank look, right? They said, "Well, he was for healthcare, right?" I said, "Well, give me the details," and they can't remember, <laughs> right? And but then I say, mm-hmm. "Well, why don't you do this? Tell me where you were and how you felt when Barack Obama won the, the on election night." and walked out on that stage with Michelle and the two girls. And they can, with vivid imagery, tell me about where they were, what they did, who they were with, what they were eating that night. And, and it goes to the heart of what, what I'm trying to get our folks to understand. That, yes, the policy and all that stuff, it's really important, right? But, David, you and I both know. That the things that you propose aren't the things that end up on the president's desk when they're signed. Right. Because it goes through that type of process. And so it's good to have some structure and some plan and and to say where you want to go. But what is important is for particularly our voters you have to inspire them. You have to give them something to hope for. And and it's that moment of thinking about when Barack Obama was in Denver and he stepped out and he accepted the nomination and the tears that people had. Right. Because it it, it fostered that hope that things were changing and things were going to get better. That moment when he steps out with Michelle and the girls, it fosters that hope and, and, and the dreams that things were going to get better. We got to figure out, our nominee has to figure out, all of our Senate candidates have to figure out, our House candidates have to figure out, how do you tap into that? If we tap into that, we will win. I don't care what Donald Trump does or says, we will win. I don't care what Lindsey Graham does or says, we will win because people are ready for that again. They are tired of the division. They're tired of the bigotry and the hatred. They're ready for something new. They want to change the channel. But we got to give them an alternative to change the channel, too. Right. I agree with that. Not enough just to count on the anti-Trump
0: vote. We, we won't get to 270 electoral votes. No. Jamie, how can people who want to help you
1: uh, rid us of the scourge of Lindsey Graham, what can they do to help you? They can go to jamieharrison.com and uh, please, we need folks to volunteer. We need financial support. Uh, Donald Trump is here uh, tomorrow to raise money for Lindsey Graham, and that goes to show you, David, that listen, this is supposed to be a safe Senate seat, right? Why in the world does a senator who's been in Washington D.C. for 25 years, a chair of the Judiciary Committee, need the President of the United States to come to his state to raise money for him? Must be he, he's a little concerned, and he should be. Because the people in the state are fed up. Uh, we're building a movement. As I like to say, this is about the New South. And I think Stacy and Beto and Andrew were able to give people a little glimpse of that. We were able to get a little glimpse of that in governor's races in Kentucky. And we saw what happened in North Carolina and Louisiana. Well, this is going to be that next chapter. We are going to be the tip of the spear of this New South, a New South that is bold, that is inclusive, and that is diverse. And when I win this race... South Carolina will become the very first state in the history of this great nation that it has two African-American senators serving at the same time.
0: God, that would be remarkable.
1: Well, maybe Graham uh, down in – is Trump
0: going to be in Charleston? Is that where he's going to be? Yeah, he's going down to Charleston. So maybe in Charleston, you know – Lindsay will do literally what he's done figuratively, which is bow down in front of his master and, uh. uh, (laughs) I'm uh, sure he will. I'm sure he will. Pledge fealty. Well, listen, your race is one of the most exciting races in the country, so I'd encourage people to get involved. Thank you for your wisdom about what folks should be watching Saturday. You know, people are going to be watching TV. They're going to be on their computers and phones pulling up county maps. So anything that I'm just curious as we end there. So what is there anything you, you did a great job going through regions? We talked about delegates, but uh, is there anything folks should really be looking out for, whether it's turnout patterns or you mentioned PD, uh, you know, some persuadable voters like what, what what should folks be watching out for more um, as they follow the returns on Saturday?
1: Well, one of the things you probably want to take a look, take a look at, there's this question of whether or not Republicans are going to cross over and try to insert some kind of chaos into our system because we're an open primary state. Right. Uh, so look in counties like Greenville and uh, and Lexington County, Horry counties, those are some of our larger Republican counties. See where that turned out as is. Uh, and you can go and find all of these statistics on org. Uh, um, but you want to take a look at Richland County uh, and Charleston County and what those the turnout in those areas are. Um, uh, at the absentee is our form of early vote here, um, so that will close down tomorrow. And, and I'm already told that it's more absentee votes than than it was in 2016. So we want to see if if the turnout model is is, is very similar in terms of uh, an increased turnout than we had in 2016 because that's really important as well.
0: Yeah, well, hopefully no matter the ordering, we have huge turnout, which will both be a good sign for your race and you know, for the overall effort, we got to win in 20. So Jamie Harrison, thank you for your time. It was great to reconnect and uh, good luck out on the trail. Okay, thank you. Take care now. Jamie Harrison, I'm sure like you, you're impressed by his enthusiasm and his passion and the kind of campaign he's running. So um, I would encourage all of you to help Jamie in any way you can. And uh, it's exciting. Hopefully we beat Lindsey Graham, but at the very least put a a huge scare into him. But uh, I think Jamie's intention is to win, and he's he's built a very powerful campaign. Uh, And I think a really good overview of South Carolina. South Carolina, I know this from experience, uh, like a lot of states, but South Carolina really does have different regions. You know, different traditions, as Jamie said, different barbecue, but also, you know, different voting patterns. And so all the campaigns down there have really had to build strategies, not just at the statewide level, but at the regional level. And, you know, I think uh, really interesting to hear from Jamie's perspective. Um, He's obviously someone who's very close to Jim Clyburn, but really to understand why that endorsement matters. When, you know, most don't or don't matter to the extent this one seems like it may. And so super interesting to get from Jamie um, his impression of why that endorsement uh, really may have provided some late momentum uh, to Vice President Biden. So tune in Saturday. It's a primary. So the vote counting should go a little bit more quickly than we saw in nevada um you know if somebody wins by a big margin maybe it will even be called early if not might go a little deeper in the night but we're going to know a lot about this race after saturday night and i look forward to to sharing some thoughts with you on that next week and then obviously super tuesday um you know rest up sunday and monday because you're going to need to be up late tuesday if you really want to kind of in a first-hand way uh, understand what's going on in the election results. And, um, you know, we, we may not know the full delegate situation till Wednesday or Thursday or even a little bit later, but we'll we'll know the bulk of it. Uh, and I think, again, some people who've really run great races, um, who've even had some really great moments, are, I think are going to be faced with the reality that there's no delegate path forward for them. And so um, this field of candidates, my guess is, is going to winnow pretty significantly. I think it should, because I think we need to give voters, you know, the choice uh, if we're down to two or three candidates uh, so they can make their decision. And I think that um, uh, if that doesn't happen in reality, I think it will happen anyway, because it will be clear to people who's in the conversation and who's really in the hunt for the nomination and who's not. So buckle up your seatbelts, because this is about to get wild and crazy. And even after Super Tuesday, where we have so many states voting, uh, you know, we've got big states voting March 10th, March 17th, March 24th. So every week now is a big event. And we're either going to know who our nominee is later in March, or, you know, this could go into to April, um, where we've got a lot of the big mid-Atlantic states. And so I think we're really, uh, to think about that, it's pretty remarkable that, um, you know, within three to four weeks, Um, Most of the country will have voted, uh, and I think the contours of this race will be entirely clear uh, whether we are going to have a a long, baton-like death march uh, uh, battle between a couple of candidates or somebody opens up a lead here. So, uh, And I would encourage you all, this is one of the things I write about in my book, some of you, uh, most of you, probably at this point, feel very passionate about one of the candidates, and you should. You should fight with everything you have for that candidate, but uh, it is going to be very important when this election's over, uh, that that our nominee, uh, the only way we get rid of Donald Trump is for one of the people on that stage this week to beat him. And uh, whether we do it with great gusto or we do it just with commitment and resolve, we got to find a way to all get behind our nominee uh, because this is going to be an exceedingly close race. Uh, the other thing I'd say is, is just in, in closing, um, I'm recording this on Thursday. We just saw the stock market going down a record uh, amount, 1,200 points. Uh, we obviously, um, as I talked to with Jamie Harrison, we hope that um, both from a health standpoint and an economic standpoint, the worst doesn't happen here. But, um, you know, this is something that's going to affect this campaign and, and it could affect um, both in terms of Trump's response to it and how he handles it. Um, this is really, I think, the first time his reality distortion field of trying to tell everybody everything's okay and what's happening isn't happening and black is white and blue is red um you know when if you know people that are sick or if you've lost your job or your 401ks uh you know taking a hit no matter what trump says the reality is going to trump that but but if folks think he's not on top of this You know, he could definitely pay an appropriate price for that. But also, if the economy, uh, not just the market, but if there's cascading effects in terms of layoffs or, you know, less job growth or wage growth, you know, obviously um, the, the health of the economy statistically, even though a lot of people, you know, kind of beneath that don't feel particularly secure. You know has been the thing holding Trump up and if that were to weaken it all obviously he's going to be in in grave political danger so all that bears watching we obviously hope as citizens our government gets it right and that our economy and our health is not seriously impacted but and that's more important than the political ramifications but we have to understand that as often happens in politics some things can insert themselves into presidential campaigns that we weren't expecting and and it could have a serious impact potentially uh you know in the weeks and months ahead so uh thanks for tuning in and look forward to spending time with you next week